Uh, We're spending our Christmas Sundays studying the four songs that are found in Luke's birth narrative. When Luke tells a story of the coming of Christ to earth, his birth through Mary, uh, he does it with songs, sort of like in a musical type fashion. Uh, Our first Sunday in this, we studied Mary's song. Uh, Last Sunday, we looked at Zechariah's song. Today, angels sing to us. Next Sunday, a man named Simeon sings to us in one of the great stories of the New Testament. Uh, And uh, so I'm glad you've been with us, and uh, I'm glad we get to be in this place this morning. Um, Several years ago, Melissa and I were in the midst of the adoption of our daughter, Mercy, our youngest daughter, uh, and she's from Uganda. And uh, many of you know our story. It was a hard adoption. We ran into some problems. We were, we were granted the adoption by the Ugandan court, but then we had significant problems securing a visa to bring Mercy home to the U.S. So what we thought would be a six-week trip for Melissa to Uganda to finish the adoption uh, turned into 11 months. And so uh, Melissa lived in Uganda with our daughter, Mercy, and was uh, fighting, fighting, fighting for a visa. And the whole time she was there, I was, I was back here with our other two daughters uh, at the time, Emma and Avery, and they had two options every morning. You can get a ponytail or a headband, that's it. <laughs> uh, that journey for us, that, that year... Uh, definitely had its peaks and valleys. And by God's grace, Melissa and I did not have our worst days on the same days. Uh, I would be down, she would be up. She would be down, I would be up. And uh, we were only able to see each other just a a few times over the course of that year. Um, After Melissa had been there for six weeks, I made a trip over to Uganda uh, for a visit then a couple of months later, Melissa was able to come home at Christmas time, and some dear missionary friends of ours were uh, able to care for Mercy while Melissa was gone. So Melissa was home for Christmas, and then back to Uganda. And so it was February of that year, and we had just been hit with blow after blow after blow, and we were both just, we were finished. We had nothing left in our tanks. And so this one particular night, it was night for me, morning for her, uh, we're talking, and She's in a bad place. I'm in a bad place. And, and I said, look, here's, I, I, I need to come see you. And plane tickets were just outrageous at that time. But I said, here's what we have to do. I'm, I'm going to sell one of the cars, buy a plane ticket. I've got, we've just got to see each other and, and, and just be together for a bit. And so we ended that conversation in tears and with resolve to do whatever it took to buy this plane ticket. And 24 hours later, I got a phone call from a guy I'd never talked to before, but whose name I knew through Melissa. Uh, I'll just, I'll call him John. And John and his wife had also adopted a child from Uganda, and they met Melissa in their process. Everyone met Melissa (laughs) that year in Uganda. And so uh, Melissa had become friends with them, and, and especially John's wife, and so I'd heard Melissa talk about him, but we, of course, hadn't had any interaction until this night when he called. And so he introduced himself. Yeah, I, I know who you are, John. I remember the stories. And uh, he said, how are you doing? And so I, I told him. I said, it's, it's not good. We're really, we're really hurting. There's, it's just been a struggle. Uh, we need, we're just we're really broken in this. And uh, he goes, okay, well, I'm glad to hear you say that because my wife and I, I've been praying for you guys. 
And we were talking, and we've decided that you need to go see Melissa, and you need to let us buy you a plane ticket. So I fell on the floor, <laughs> and then I got back up and, and couldn't believe what had happened, just 24 hours. And the truth is, in my, uh, in my frail hope, I hadn't prayed for a plane ticket. <laughs> I hadn't said, God, do this for me. I wasn't at peak righteousness or anything noble or honorable. I was pretty upset with the way things had been. And here God in His grace brought this incredible gift our way. And so for the next several weeks, I told this story over and over about, I don't know, 50,000 times. Listen to what this guy John and his wife have done for us. And then with that, I was able to tell a story about what God had done. This Really, it's God who's done this incredible thing. We had this need. God has met our need. It's incredible. I, I took the spotlight and I shined it on God for everyone around me to see because it was so amazing. The narrative had changed. My narrative had been, pray for me, we're broken, to Rejoice with me. Look at this thing God has done. When God moves in our lives, when God intersects your life, the result is praise and glory to a God of grace. And we see that familiar refrain this morning in the passage we're going to read, and the song we'll hear the angels sing. They sing a song of glory to God because of the thing he's done for his people. Out of his grace, because of his great character, his uniqueness as God, he has moved on our behalf. And that causes angels to sing glory, and that's going to cause shepherds to sing glory, and I hope it's going to cause you to sing glory as well. Glory is a church word that we use a lot, or glorifying God, a phrase we use often. When we talk like that, what we're talking about is shining the spotlight on God. Look at what He has done. Look at who He is. I want all of you to see this, hear this, join with me in this praise. The Christmas story calls us to glorify God and to praise Him. So my purpose in preaching this passage today is for you to glorify God in your faith, in your life, because of His love to us in Jesus. Just that simple. So our, our focus is going to start in verse 8, verse 8 through 21 this morning, but I want to read starting in verse 1. So chapter 2, start reading in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 21. Follow along with me as I read. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. and She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. 
I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. This is a story of God's glory. That glory manifest in the hearts, in the lives, the voices of people who are impacted by the coming of Christ. And so I want to share from this very familiar passage. In this passage packed full of nuclear potential. I want to share with you three reasons why your life should be filled with glory to God at the coming of Christ. So if you're taking notes, why should your life glorify God at the coming of Christ? First of all, because Jesus came for low people. Verses 8 through 12, Jesus came for low, L-O-W, people. When I say low, what I mean is sinful, broken powerless, voiceless, hurting people who need a Savior. He came for low people. Luke sets the scene perfectly for us in verse 8. The shepherds are in the field taking care of their sheep. It is night. And then all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord appears to them. Now, we're not given the angel's name, but we might assume it's the same angel that had appeared previously to Mary and previously to Zechariah in Luke's account, and that angel's name was Gabriel. So it might be Gabriel. It seems fitting that it would be. And just like the angel's visit to Zechariah and to Mary, the visit to the shepherds follows a familiar pattern. The pattern goes like this. Angel appears. The person is terrified. They are given comfort They are given a message. They are given a sign. So with Zechariah, remember he's in the temple doing his priestly things. The angel appears and Zechariah, terrified. The angel comforts him. Do not be afraid. The angel gives the message. And then the angel gives the sign. The sign is your your very old wife, Elizabeth, will have a child. Mary, same scenario. The angel appears to Mary. Mary's terrified. The angel comforts her. Do not be afraid. Gives the message and then says, here's your sign. You, though you are a virgin, you will be with child. The Holy Spirit will come over you. 
Well, the same pattern happens here with the shepherds. The angel appears, the shepherds lose it, terrified. And you, you and I would be too. If, if an angel appears to you tonight, you're not going to say, I've been waiting on you. It's about time. Pull up a chair. Come on. When, when sinful humanity comes face to face with the blazing glory of God, we know instantly what we deserve. So the, the shepherds are terrified, not just because of the phenomenon, but because in the presence of holiness, it feels judgment is due. But the angel says, do not be afraid. I bring good news. Delivers the message, and then here's the sign. The sign is you're going to find this baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Now, a concern of mine is that we're so familiar with the story that we've lost the wonder of the whole scene to us, it's just, you've, you've read it so often. You've heard Linus quote it so many times. It's just all so familiar to us that we just think, well, well, yeah, angels appeared to shepherds. That's just the way the story goes. But we've lost the weight of how totally weird and unexpected it is that shepherds are the audience for angels on this night. There's a lot of conjecture about what these shepherds might have been like. It makes for imaginative preaching. and We don't want to go down that road, but here's what we can say for sure that we do know about these shepherds. The fact that they are shepherds tells us that they are not men of means. In fact, they're peasants. And as peasants, they are people who are powerless. They are on a low rung of society. And these are the guys that the angels appear to. Now, if you were writing the story... Who do you think the angels should appear to? This one angel and then the heavenly host, this great company of the heavenly host, we might think they should appear to people of power. Maybe they should appear to Augustus. He's mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 2. Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the Roman world, uh, Rome's own savior. You might think, The angels would appear to him and sing the song and things would change. Or maybe Quirinius, the governor over Syria. Or or maybe Herod the Great, who was the governor over Judea. Or maybe, maybe the angel should have appeared to the high priest. That would make sense. Here's this great spiritual act, this incredible moment. Surely the high priest should receive the audience. And if no one else, why not the parents? Why didn't the angels show up to Joseph and Mary? sing the song, do the thing. But they don't. They show up to shepherds, powerless peasants caring for sheep. And we're not told that these shepherds are particularly holy or righteous. No, we're told that about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Mary gets good press as well as to her character. But not these shepherds. No, we're not told they're utterly bad. But look, they, they are not some sort of Messiah watch group. Right? They're not out in the fields that night sharing messianic prophecies. Maybe this is the night. Keep your eyes to the east. This could be that, that's, they're, they're taking care of sheep. That's all they're doing. And God in His incredible grace and infinite wisdom and beautiful sovereignty makes these guys the audience for glory. It's remarkable also that this takes place on a farm, in a field, and not in the temple. The, right, the, the Jewish temple, this one piece of property in Jerusalem, 
it's impossible to overstate its importance to Jewish life. It was the center of the universe. It was where heaven met earth. It wasn't uh, like a church like we think of so many churches. It was the place where the very presence of God dwelt in this special room called the Holy of Holies. So in, in Jewish life and thought, the, the, the thinking would have been, well, if, if God's going to do something huge for mankind, the temple is the real estate where that announcement would be made. But not on this night. It's in a field, and it's to shepherds, and it's nighttime, and everything about it is simple and humble and unexpected. These details of the Messiah's arrival show us that the new world that he brings is a radically different one than the one we've been living in. Very different ideas about holiness and value and power and position. Things change, and this is good news of great joy that will be for all the people. All the people. That includes Plymouth County and beyond. It's good news for all the people. This is not just good news for Israel. It goes beyond those borders to all people. How amazing that that grace is extended to us. In the shepherds, we see ourselves. In their powerlessness, their sinfulness, their brokenness, their unexpectedness. It's a reflection of me and you right here in the story. Who knows what our outsides project to people around us, what images we uphold of ourselves. We know our shortcomings, we know our needs, and we are right in league with people like these shepherds. Spiritually speaking, we are sleeping in the dark of death, and we don't even know it. We need rescue, we need salvation. It's amazing that the announcement comes to shepherds and the announcement comes to you and I today. When the angel gives his announcement, he gives some vital information in verse 11. Look at it with me. He says to the shepherds, Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. So he gives them the where. It's in the town of David. Now, the angel doesn't just simply say Bethlehem. He could have. Instead, he chooses to say the town of David. And in doing so, he's telling us this, reminding us, this is King David's hometown Right, He's got BHS on his high school diploma. This is where David is from. And the Old Testament has told us this is where the Messiah will come from also. David's line and David's town. Micah chapter 5, out of Bethlehem is going to come this one. In this detail, we, we hear some echoes of Zechariah's song, don't we? Zechariah Last week said in chapter 1, verse 69, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. It's a big deal that the Messiah comes from the town of David and from the line of David. Another interesting detail in the angel's announcement is is that he doesn't share the baby's name. He doesn't say Jesus is born. He just says a, a baby is born, and then he identifies the baby by three titles. Do you see those in verse 11? Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. Savior, Christ, and Lord. These titles, they reveal His purpose. 
I mean, they, they identify his office for sure, his status, but they also speak to his purpose, what he's come for. He is a Savior. And as Savior, he will redeem his people from their sin and guilt. He is Christ. As Christ, he is the anointed one promised by God, the one whom all the prophets looked forward to. As Lord, he is the one that we will live our lives in glad submission to. This is not just some other baby, any baby. This is not some baby who was chosen by God. This is God himself come to us. God the Son is born this night. Savior, Christ, Lord. The angel tells the shepherds how to find the baby in verse 12. This will be a sign to you. You'll find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. One of the great misinterpretations in all of our nativities is that the manger is the stable, but the manger is not the stable. The stable is a stable. The manger is a feeding trough. It's where you'd put the slop for the pigs or the grain for the sheep or the cows or whatever. So what Joseph and Mary do on this night in their very humble setting is they take a food trough and they turn it into a cradle. That's the manger. And it's entirely anticlimactic, if you ask me. A Savior, Christ, Lord is born. How will I know when I see Him? A fiery chariot? Angels surrounding Him? Glories of heaven all around? It's just a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a food trough. That's how you find Him. Maybe if you and I are writing the story, we add some more glitz and glamour to it. We make this scene just huge. But here in the sign given to the shepherds, we get a foretaste, I think, of the humble way in which this Savior will achieve salvation, in which this Christ will accomplish that for which He's been sent, that this Lord will take His place on the throne reigning over our lives. Wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger, reminds me of being wrapped in linen lying in a tomb. Here we get a sweet foretaste of the cross by which this one will save. He saves us by laying down his life, emptying himself, becoming nothing. The one who becomes humble saves the humble, the low. He himself is a humble Savior. How amazing is God's love for us? When we think about what he has done, how he came, and who he is, doesn't this remove the pressure to perform? In your life, you have so many expectations of you, so many people who are measuring you by your performance. Your God is not one who measures your value by your performance. He comes to shepherds, low and sinful, and he comes to us. Same type of people. Not because we've merited it, not because we are extra special, or because he sees tremendous potential in us necessarily. It's just because that's how magnificent his love is. How incredible his character is. He loves sinners. And he comes to save us from our sin and guilt. And he does that in a very specific way. God the Son has come to save us through the sacrifice of his own life. That is cause for glory. Jesus came for low people like us, therefore we can glorify Him. There's another reason we can glorify God at the coming of Christ. From this story, 
We can glorify God because Jesus removes our curse. Verses 13 through 15, Jesus removes our curse. So the scene goes from unbelievable to just utterly astonishing. One angel is enough to mess you up for a long time. But then a great company of the heavenly hosts appear with the angel and they begin to sing. Uh, Luke is such a masterful storyteller. The shepherds are watching their sheep at night and then the glory of the Lord shines around them. Doesn't that take us back to Zechariah's song as well? Chapter 1, verse 79, Zechariah said the Lord had come to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. Doesn't that take you back just about 15 minutes ago when Pastor Stephen read from Isaiah chapter 9 and read the exact same words? Now, Luke doesn't give us a ton of details in this specific scene. But I I can't help but try to imagine what it must have looked like, sounded like, felt like to be one of those shepherds in that moment. In every other angelic appearance, the, the angel of the Lord is on ground, doesn't seem to be floating, at least in Luke's story, it's not floating above, it's the angel is standing. And so here the angel, I assume, is standing with the shepherds, and then all of a sudden a great company of the heavenly hosts are there with him. So where, where are they? Do, do they just stand in front of the shepherds? Do they surround the shepherds? The glory of the Lord shone all around them. Maybe those angels are all around them. How many is a, a great company? I, I don't know. It wouldn't take very many to just be floored at the scene. But here a great company appears. And what did it feel like when they sang their song? I don't, I don't think this is some just sweet and simple, and I, I think it rattles you. In Isaiah chapter 6, uh, when the two seraphim praise God in his throne room, it says that when they sang, the doorposts of the temple shook and the throne room was filled with smoke. I, I'm not saying that's what happened on this night. I'm just saying when the angel choir sings, it is It's got to be earth-shaking in some form. So just imagine that this scene in this song was more powerful, more heavenly, more beautiful than we can imagine. The great company of the heavenly host sings this incredible song, profound song in verse 14. Look at it with me. Two simple lines. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. It has two simple lines to this song, and those lines parallel each other perfectly. Glory parallels peace. God in the high, or that glory that goes to God parallels the peace that comes to men. God in the highest, your Bible might say, in the highest heavens. So when it says glory to God in the highest, it's speaking of God's position. It's not, it's not a reflection on the glory, it's a reflection on God. God in the highest parallels the men who are on earth. Glory and peace, God and men in heaven and on earth. And at the news of Christ's coming, do you know what people do in the story throughout Luke's account? They always praise Mary praises God. Elizabeth praises God. Zechariah, when his mouth is opened, 
praises God. You know what the angels do? They praise God. They glorify Him at this thing God has done. God gets glory. And and what do we get? We get peace. And who is it that has access to this peace? Well, it's, it's not just Israel. It's all people. Right? The phrase in the song that the men on whom his favor rests, well, it's a phrase that describes God's gracious election for sure, but it's not a phrase that we've got to use in some sort of exclusive sense. The coming of Christ is mercy for all people. The proclamation of the gospel is mercy for all people. God's saving favor does not rest on all people, but those whom he calls, those whom he saves. But still, this coming of Christ is mercy to the whole world. It's peace. And what's this peace like? You're familiar with the Hebrew word shalom. In Hebrew thought, shalom is more than just a word. Uh, It's an entire concept. In one sense, that peace is a, a change in relationship from conflict to blessing. If I have peace with God... It's because God has removed the conflict between he and I. And this is Christianity 101, that my starting point with God is one of sin. You and I have in us Adam's sinful DNA and Eve's sinful DNA. We are by nature objects of wrath, according to Ephesians chapter 2. We don't start with a blank slate and then mess it up. Our our slate is already against us from the get-go. So here is this conflict between us and God, this curse. God requires punishment on our sin. His holiness demands it. So if Jesus is the one who has come and brought peace on earth to men, what it means is that the curse has been removed. He doesn't bring peace to peddle it like some little delivery man. Hey, here's a little piece for you and a little piece for you. He creates the peace by Removing the curse. And what happens to the curse? It it doesn't just vaporize into the air. Someone has to endure that curse. And that someone is Jesus. God is glorified in this moment because of something the shepherds don't yet understand fully. They don't know how that peace will be granted. They don't know how the curse is removed. But you know, on this side of Easter, you know That Jesus goes to the cross and dies in our place. He takes the penalty for our sin so that you and I could live in the light of his righteousness for all eternity. Doesn't that remind you again of the prophet Isaiah, who in chapter 53, verse 5, said, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Peace from God doesn't just appear like a surprise snow. Peace from God is fought for and won at the cross by God the Son, Jesus, Savior, Christ, Lord, who has come to bring peace on earth for those on whom his favor rests. You can glorify God because the curse has been removed. You can glorify God because the curse has been removed. You can glorify God because Jesus came for low people. A third and final reason, glorify God because Jesus makes us new. We've seen quite a bit of transition in our story with Luke, uh, from Luke. 
Uh, Zechariah goes through tremendous change. Mary goes through tremendous change. Uh, Joseph, in other accounts in Scripture, goes through tremendous change. The shepherds do also. The angels finish the song. We're told that they, go, they return to heaven. And then I love the shepherd's response. Luke tells us in verse 16, they hurried off. Now, can you imagine if the angels leave and then the shepherds are like, we'll get to this in the morning. And then they go lay down. No. Shepherd, or the angels sing, the angels leave, the shepherds are on a mission. Laser-like focus. They hurry off. And Luke doesn't tell us how they find Mary and Joseph and the baby. He doesn't tell us that there's a special star for them or anything like that. Just somehow they go to the right place and it's confirmed by the sign they see when they step in there. Here's a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a food trough, turned into a makeshift cradle. Now I think it's no small thing the way in which the shepherds approach the Christ child. I want you to remember what it's like for the high priest in the Jewish temple to step into the Holy of Holies just once a year. You remember what that guy has to do in order to come into the manifest presence of God in this sacred room? All kinds, days and days of rituals and cleansing and preparation for this once-a-year brief audience with the Lord. What do the shepherds do? They just come. In all their dirtiness and sinfulness and powerlessness, they just come to Christ and they stand in the presence of God the Son who has come to us. And on this night, the shepherds are utterly transformed by what they've seen and what they've heard. What the angels, say, what the angels said is incredible. What the angels sung is remarkable. But then what the shepherds see with their own eyes confirms it all, and they are men who are utterly changed. They're changed from just simple shepherds into witnesses. They become messengers of this story. Look at verse 17. When they had seen him, that's the baby, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Again, it It gives us echoes of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. Shepherds become shouters. They become storytellers. They speak of this incredible glory and this great thing God has done. Their lives are changed. They're not just storytellers. They also become singers themselves. Look at verse 20. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The shepherds did exactly what the angels had done for them. The angels told the story. The angels sang the glory of God. The shepherds did the exact same thing. Tell the story. Sing the glory. It's natural for you and I to mimic the shepherds in their Sinful humility. But it's another thing for us to mimic the shepherds in their storytelling and their glory giving to God. When you and I, humble and low, powerless in ourselves to do anything to change that, are intersected by the blazing grace of God 
to rescue us from our sin. Friend, you've got a story to tell. Your life's been changed. You've gone from dead to alive, sinner to righteous, condemned to blessed forevermore. You've got a story that needs to be told, and you've got glory that needs to be given, a song that has to be sung to God because of who He is and what He's done. No merit of my own, nothing I've done to ask for this or deserve this. God just moves in His unfathomable grace to rescue us. That's the stuff of glory. It's the stuff of praise. But it's, it's hard sometimes, right, to sing the song, to tell the story, even for people who walk with Christ. Not, our stories are dulled by sin. Our songs go askew because of our weak and feeble hearts. It's easy for our affections for God to wane and then we become people without a song. People who aren't telling a story. And that could be you this morning. And if it is, well, how good is God to give you an audience with the shepherds and the angels to say, I love you and let's move forward together. Because you get to put your nose in this book, even though your heart may be heavy, your spirit is weak, you can put your nose in this book and sit with the shepherds. Or you can put your nose in this book and you can hear Jesus teach about the kingdom life. Or you can see Jesus perform his miracles. Or you can run with Peter and John to the empty tomb. Or you can walk with Paul on the road to Damascus in his encounter with Christ. Or you can tour that eternal city that needs no sun because the glory of God gives it light forevermore. Shake off that old man, that old woman, and clothe yourself with Christ so that the stories you tell and the songs you sing are of God's perfect love for you and those who have ears to hear. So glory is due to God this morning. Jesus came, and in his coming, he came to save sinful people like you and I. Jesus has come, and in doing so, he brings us peace by removing the curse that was there. He's worthy of glory because he's changed our lives. Shepherds become something different. You and I become something new, and that's the stuff of glory. If you remember when we started reading this morning, our story began with Caesar Augustus. It's a remarkable way to tell the story. Luke takes us in this funnel from Caesar Augustus on down to focus on Jesus. We, we begin with Caesar Augustus in the world. We move to Quirinius in Syria. We move to Bethlehem and Joseph. And then at the end of it all is a laser-like focus on Jesus in the manger. And it's an interesting contrast between Augustus and Jesus. Augustus sits on his throne, but Jesus rests in a feed trough. Augustus is in his palace. Jesus is with the animals. Augustus has his mighty army. Jesus has peasant parents. Augustus is the ruler over Rome. And who is Jesus? 
He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Colossians 1, 15-20. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace men on whom his favor rests. Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, we come to you as shepherds. Let us leave as singers. We need this vision today, God. We need this scene. We, we need to... We need to hear what the angel says, and we need to experience what the angels sing, and we need to see Christ. God, thank you for your grace to us in letting us see and hear as we have today through your word. God, I pray that you would bring to our hearts, to our minds, the salvation that you promised through Jesus Christ. Thank you that your move towards us is one of mercy. Thank you that your move towards us is grace and salvation. So Father God, I I pray for brothers and sisters in this room who came to church and they came in here struggling and hurting. Father God, thank you for meeting them in this place with your words of grace and mercy and love and salvation. Father, turn their hearts to you. Bring salvation today. I pray for my brothers and sisters who have been struggling in their walk. Their affections for you have fallen off. Circumstances, sin, whatever the thing is, God. But with our audience, with the angels today, with us having seen Christ in the manger, let us leave out of here in a hurry (laughs) to tell your story and to praise your name. Thank you for being this kind of God, so close to hurting people, so patient with us, in all the ways we mess up. But a God who is so secure in your promises to us, for this we praise you. Thank you for coming for us. Thank you for this kind of salvation. Thank you for eternal life. Thank you for that place where there are no more tears, no more sickness, no more dying, no more mourning, no more night. Your eternal glory forever and ever. God, we long for that day. Let it begin now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.